0: University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name's Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Corey Lee Wren. Corey is Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Kent, where she is also co-director of the Center for the Study of Social and Political Movements. Uh, today we'll be discussing discussing her book, Animals in Irish Society: Interspecies Oppression and Vegan Liberation in Britain's First Colony. Uh, this this book was first it was published in two thousand and twenty one by the State University of New New York Press. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Corey.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Kyle. It's very cool.
0: Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining me. Um, I, I enjoyed your book. Uh, so could could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, uh, what topics you work on, or or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you?
1: Okay. Uh, I'm an American sociologist. I moved to England in 2019. Um, I specialize in vegan studies, critical animal studies, vegan sociology. So actually during lockdown, I co-founded with my uh, colleague Zoe Sutton in Australia, the International Association for Vegan Sociologists. And we're working to kind of normalize and I guess give, give space to, um, you know, sociological study of other animals from a critical vegan perspective. So pretty much all of my work is in that area, but I specifically focus on the past, present and future uh, politics of animal rights mobilization in the West. So I've done, I've, I'm focused on the United States and um, Great Britain and to some extent Australia, but this, the book we're going to talk about today is, I think, dare I say, <laughs> the first book to really, really look at, at Ireland.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 Um... Uh, I look forward to getting into that with you. You you, you founded another cool vegan thing. So uh, or before you've uh, co-founded the International Association of Vegan Sociologists, you uh, you founded something called the Vegan Feminist Network. Um, are, are you interested in saying a, a word or two about that?
1: Yeah, thanks. Actually, very cool, because we are coming up on our 10 year anniversary. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. As I started that in um, yeah 2013 in a time where... I guess you could say it was like post Carol Adams because Carol Adams' work had been around; most people from re- relatively familiar with it. But we were now in a new era of um, really internet advocacy. More and more people at that time had internet access—regular internet access. It was democratizing, um, um, like real space, like democratizing the space to have your say. Basically, so marginalized groups for the first time could actually enter the discussion, the discourse. Um, however, I mean, the, the movement has traditionally had a lot of problems with just male centrism, classism, racism, those sorts of things. So Vegan Feminist Network was really a space where uh, specifically women, but really anybody from a marginalized background who wanted to talk about how other uh, human oppressions intersect with animal oppression. So that's been going. Uh, I mean, it, it, since I've become a full time academic, I don't put as, have that much time to put into it, but we usually give out one update every month or so on our blog so yeah thanks for asking about that 10 years strong
0: yeah yeah that's wonderful um and uh i mean we should we should get to your your book soon but um <laughs> okay so this is like a philosophical thought um or maybe maybe it's more empirical perhaps um i mean the, the, the so the thought is just something like so I, I uh i occasionally encounter and i think it's probably true to the the claim that um uh, there's a pretty strong causal relationship between um recognizing the existence of animal oppression and going mm-hmm. vegan and then also being more sensitive to other forms of oppression like if you if you do that you're more likely to be more aware of different ways in which um men oppress women and sexism exists and more aware of like different ways in which racism expresses itself etc um but at the same time like the connection can't be that tight because like the animal rights movement has had as you've noted like serious problems with um uh, sexist behavior and um, and and whatnot. So I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you. I don't know if you have an opinion about like how close. Well,
1: there, there's yeah. actually increasingly research on that. I know. I did yeah. uh, a few years back. I did a study because I was kind of alarmed by what I was seeing as this underlying current of really conservative ideology that was in the animal rights movement. So after Donald Trump was elected, <laughs> I had to do something, right? And so I felt like I, I decided to do the study on. Um, vegan awareness and support for other uh, oppressions. When I found was by and large, um, well, actually, first off, there's about 10% or more of my participants were Trump voters, which was shocking to me. So it's there. Uh, but by and large, my participants were very much so, intersectionally conscious, and not just that, but they were actively engaged in other social movements. So this old myth that vegans are don't care about humans; they just care about animals. That, that doesn't really hold up. Although I will say that a lot of my recruitment, I had difficulty. I'm, a lot of vegans um, answered that survey. By the way, like 300 of them. Um, but I'm I'm a bit suspicious. There may be some bias at it through it because I did do it. I did um, uh, advertise for participants through my vegan ne- Fe- vegan feminist network uh, Facebook page. Nonetheless, the fact that there was 10% even then that said they <laughs> voted for Trump. However, I will also direct people's attention to increasingly there's a body of research uh, emerging in social psychology. So my colleague Christoph Daunt here at the University of Kent has done a lot of work in that. And we're seeing very clearly that there are attitudinal um, correlations between people who care about other animals and caring about other human groups, but also the reverse. If you, have, um, if you exhibit higher... Oppressive attitudes. If you're more sexist, things like that, you're also more likely to be um, have a lower attitude towards animals or you know, not supportive of vegetarian or veganism. So there's actually research now, very exciting, to support intersectionality.
0: Right, but but I, I mean, I guess the what I guess one shouldn't take that sort of idea too far. Like you shouldn't think that okay, I've gone vegan and I've noticed how bad the situation of animals is, and that and that it needs to be fixed. You shouldn't think that that's enough for you to now be like completely aware of all your prejudice and to be completely privileged, literate or or what have you. Like there's still work to do in in each specific area where there's, where there's oppression, I think. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Let's let, yeah, let's get to the book, which by the way, uh, is not, is not unrelated to these sorts of things. Um, (laughs) so what, why why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, to be perfectly honest (laughs) at the time, um, gosh, when did it come out? 2019. I started writing it, I think in 2015 as a, I guess, a book chapter because the University of Vienna was putting together an encyclopedia and air quotes around that because it was more like, it's going to be more like a a multi-volume edited book, I think. And there was an option in there to do um, some, it was a vegan encyclopedia, sorry, a vegan encyclopedia. And there was an option there to do something on Ireland. And I thought, huh. At the time I was living in Ireland, I have a partner there. I'm still living in America, but I was spending three months at a time in Ireland. So a lot of time in Ireland. And it was like, huh, it's very interesting to me because I specialize in the animal rights movement, vegan studies, but hardly have I ever heard anything about Ireland. And what, so I decided I was going to start looking into it. And the more I started looking into it, it it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot of interesting history here, but there's also a lot of important, I think, theoretical contributions that need to be unpacked. But really what set me over the edge is eventually that 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 encyclopedia didn't come to fruition. And I realized it was I had too much to fit into a chapter anyway. Um, But then I was getting ready for another trip back to Ireland. I was in the United States and I was in a a bar with my brother just making chit chat with a bartender. and, And he asked me, what are you doing in Ireland? And 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 he found out that I was vegan and he says, what are, you, what are you going to do in Ireland as a vegan? All they have is meat and potatoes. Now, I had already been doing this research and also had been living in Ireland, so I knew that that was bunk and that actually Ireland was as up to speed as any other Western country with their veganism and animal rights ethics. So that, I felt that really was the impetus for me is to create this book and push back on those myths about Ireland not being um, politically astute or backwards in some way. And a lot of that is old colonial stereotyping that Irish people are somehow backwards and you know not morally up to speed with the rest of the rest of the world. Um, and the other thing, also Kyle, is just that I I did a lot of research in the history of the animal rights movement in the West and and really the U.S. and the U.K. And although Ireland had contributed so much, the the these histories, these narratives, really that have been created to memorialize our movement, largely silent on Ireland. So that was, this is really, a, it was a political gesture, really. It's like to keep, to, you know, to kind of get our history up to speed and also recognize the important contributions that Ireland has for, for the animal rights movement. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah, I, 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 I this, this is, this uh, is, I guess, a question that, um, I, interest me more than sometimes it normally does. Um, cause it seemed like there was all these really cool, like you, you covered a lot of uh, great reasons for, for writing the book, but, um, it seemed to me like there was uh, like the case for writing the book was really quite overdetermined. Um, so, um, so I mean, you, you mentioned that, um, Ireland, um, has been n- neglected in the work that focuses on the history of the animal rights movement. Um, mm-hmm. and also by, um, animal studies and critical animal studies. Yeah. Um, and uh, that—I that, mean—that's—that's that's bad. But its it, it, its also kind of bad in a way that is worse than normally neglecting something is. I mean, there's lots of academic topics that are are neglected, and it's great when people work on them because because neglected stuff shouldn't get neglected. But in this case, the neglect—I I take it that you think that the reason Ireland has been neglected in in historical work on animal rights and also in animal studies and critical animal studies is that it, it's because Ireland—it's at least in part because Ireland is a former colony, right? <laughs> is that that right Um, so there's something okay go
1: ahead yeah sorry it's especially like for for us listeners like the united states today not in the past but today the united states because of the huge irish diaspora there is this kind of fantasy like fantasy thinking about ireland romantic romanticizing them kind of this nostalgia for ireland but in the uk a lot different because of the kind of colonial relationship here and there's still a lot of heavy stigmatization of irish folks here and um, a lot of the stereotypes persist and we need to remember also that the the kind of birth of the animal rights movement in the modern era came out of england came out of the of the uk and so they've kind of dominated that narrative historically and of course the united states also has looked up especially when the movement was taking off in the 1800s looked up to the uk and so Perhaps just kind of focusing on the U.K. and then, and then later focusing on the U.S. But uh, also in the U.S., I don't want to say that it was, it's was it been this perfect kind of romanticization, which I think now is largely the case. But in the 1800s, if, if people may be familiar with Henry Burr, who founded the ASPCA in New York City. Well, New York City in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, this is post-famine, was actually had a huge, huge Irish population. I think something like one in four people there were from Ireland, this massive, massive Irish population. And some some folks might be aware of this, maybe not, but actually those early laws to protect animals, like the anti-cruelty laws that came into place under Henry Burr and other, other organizations in the U.S. and really in the U.K. as well, were really put into place not just to protect non-human animals, but also to kind of um, keep in check the lower classes. And so a lot of these laws would disproportionately focus on, on the working poor, whereas like hunting things like that, the rich p- folks took, took advantage of, they would not be um, you know, put under scrutiny. But because so many people in, uh, uh, from Ireland and working in just sticking with New York City as an example, so many of them were really, really, you know, destitute, working poor, and they were doing a lot of that drudgery work and oftentimes working with dogs, um, working with um, horses and mules and so on. They were really a target in a lot of ways for the early enforcement of animal cruelty laws. And so much so that the Irish people really get targeted for this, that it is said, uh, the historian for, uh, his name is Bernard Untie, is a historian for the Humane Society of the United States. He makes mention of this in his dissertation, which I think is a crime crime that he never actually published as a book, but you can find his dissertation online. But he makes mention that Henry Burr used to keep a file in his office that's, that was titled The Crimes of the Celtic Race. <laughs> so so there's like this long history of the animal rights movement, actually like thinking that Irish people were somehow barbarian, they're savages, they don't know how to treat animals right. And that actually goes back to the early colonial days. Uh, some of the first animal rights laws ever put on the books uh, were, uh, they were about Irish people not treating their animals correctly, like not uh, tying, tying, uh, what's the word? Plows to horses' tails. And they thought that was especially cruel. There's a lot of reasons why we think maybe that that law may have come into place. But I think uh, the one reason probably is, is because this is a, is a way for people to protect their plows, because a horse would stop if it would hit a rock, or he or she would hit a rock. And so a lot of poor Irish people who didn't have money for proper plows would do that. And it became a way of you're not going to get rid of that practice. It became a way really for the uh, English colonizers to um, make money, basically. So then, so basically, it's just like a history for the, for the animal rights movement and really for the state. When the state creates anti-cruelty laws, it's a history of really targeting Irish people and using that as an excuse to control them and also to... Um, rationalize colonization, rationalize nativism in the United States, and rationalize extreme discrimination against Irish people.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know how much, uh, I mean, I, I have these other questions that kind of move through the book that I should probably get to in a moment. But um, I, I I think something that maybe was mentioned as, as part of the motivation for writing the book was, so it was, uh, Ireland was, was Britain's first colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess as anyone who Who's thought about colonialism knows colonialism had a huge impact on just the world. And um, it, it, I mean, is it reasonable to think that uh, a lot of the um, oppressive norms associated with colonialism kind of developed in Ireland and then were applied elsewhere? Is, is that...
1: Uh, well, obviously, like there was other colonial projects that happened and there's lots of amazing case studies that we could explore. But I do think that because Ireland really was Britain's first, you could look back to Wales. And I think someone if someone would like to do a similar type of book on Wales, we could really learn a lot more. But Wales was really before Great Britain really existed. Right. So it was England's first colony. But Ireland was Great Britain's first like major colony in hundreds and hundreds of years. The Normans were there before. The Normans were there in the, I think, 1100s or so. The Christians came before that. So it's this long, long legacy of, of these colonial like powers that came in. So I do think that Ireland is being overlooked and mistakenly. I think there's a lot to learn there. So in critical animal studies, this kind of new new field of colonial or decolonial uh, animal studies, there's, there's a two-pronged argument here. And the first argument is, and, and and I have to give credit where credit is due. I think David Nybert has done really good work in this area. His second book on um, oppression and the colonial project and domestication, which he calls domestication, he's he's argued that colonialism and not just the modern colonialism as we understand it, but even going back further into time, he's looked at all at all over the world, like even back to like Genghis Khan, Khan and things like that. It's really really fascinating. But basically, what he's arguing is that as these um, animal agricultural societies that basically rely on the domestication and oppression of non-human animals, they have to kind of expand in order to maintain – because it's extremely resource intensive. So they have to expand in order to get water, resources like food, energy, land, all those sorts of things – and he has argued that really a lot of the colonial expansion and war and conflict historically has been, been because of our reliance on non-human animals exploitively for, for food. So that's one part of it. So it's, it really has been a, an an impetus for a lot of the colonial expansion. And that was absolutely case, the case in Ireland. Absolutely the case in Ireland. the Ireland, the pristine green kind of pasture that we, pasture land that we, the rolling green hills of Ireland that we fantasize about today, that was made made possible because of hundreds and hundreds of years of colonization where the forests were cleared out to make more pasture, to bring in more cows and sheep so that there could be more food products that be created and sent back to Great Britain or elsewhere in the colonies to feed the colonial system. So it's absolutely the case that, that Ireland has experienced a lot of that because of the expansion, uh, expanding reliance on the exploitation of non-human animals. Second, The second issue with this is the idea is that when you expand animal exploitation, economies of animal exploitation into colonial regions, you're also introducing this idea, this concept of the animal or animality, this notion that there is the other. And so when you've introduced that that economic system, I mean, that's kind of classic Marx right there is that the economic mode of production is going to determine the superstructure, our ideologies, our thinking, our symbols, our Uh, how we categorize our religion, our politics, and all that sort of thing. So this is what we think might be happening here with colonialism, is the introduction of the exploitation of non-human animals on a large economic scale. We've created this category of animal. And so what invariably happens is that category of animal expands beyond non-human animals to also include colonized human subjects. And so now you can say, well, these people are lesser than, they're barbaric, they're savage. In the case of Ireland, Ireland, Irish people, literally considered animal-like, non-human, or at least subhuman. So there's, in some of the scientific books, you can see that sort of the imagery where they're trying to create some kind of scientific basis to this. So the category of animal expands to the humans as well. And then, like I said, also, The kind of the the flip side of the coin there is that oftentimes the treatment or the the relationships between the colonized humans and the animals that live there can be exploited as something that's barbaric or savage. So Ireland, Irish people were very much so stigmatized for living with their animals. And, you know, if anyone spent time in Ireland, it gets very cold, rainy and windy, and especially in the winter months, it made sense to live with your animals as a a source of heating. Uh, another practice, because uh, early Ireland, early Ireland was a cattle economy and they were not so much meat eaters. That's also another myth. But the cattle will be used as is as a uh, as currency. They be used for milk. But one of the practices they had was called bullying and they would go up into the hills with the cattle seasonally. And that also was seen as some kind of rudimentary, basic, like barbaric, backwards, primitive type of, of lifestyle for for lesser than humans. So that's what we're getting at with this kind of colonial, the colonial theory here. There's a lot of different things to explore, but basically the expansion of animal agriculture being the basis for colonial oppression. And number two, that the, anim, the creation of that category of the animal, which can be easily applied to uh, the colonized humans.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess at the very least you could say, so there, there's all these sort of colonial tropes. Um, And and a lot of them, we we see them, we see them play out in Ireland, we see them play out elsewhere. And historically, um, a lot of those tropes, we see them, maybe not first playing out in Ireland, because like you mentioned, Wales predated that, but um, a lot of it, a lot of what a lot of the colonial tropes, they were happening in Ireland, well, well, before they happened throughout the rest of the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, um, well, so I guess uh, I'll, I'll move on in a sec. Um, what, what, one thing you mentioned um, with respect to writing the book is that it was a little awkward to write it. Um, and the reason is just because, um, well, you're, you're not Irish. I, I think you you mentioned that you're of Irish uh, descent sort of distantly, but you're, you're American. Uh, maybe.
1: And, yeah. <laughs> like, maybe. I mean, I'm, an, I'm from Appalachia. Most yeah. of us are from, uh, we're mostly Scott Irish ancestry, which I guess technically means we're Scottish mm-hmm. because we were put over into Ireland as a part of the colonial okay. project. Okay.
0: Um, but yeah, but so you, you, I mean, you're, you're very well aware that, um, you're not really Irish, um, right. yeah. and, um, and you're also aware that, that, um, there's risks associated with that. Like there's, there's a risk that you, when talking about, about, uh, writing a book about Ireland, you could end up treating some subject matter insensitively, or that, um, you, you could maybe make, make mistakes that, um, someone who's Irish would be less likely to make. So you, you were very aware of that the whole time. And I think you, you did things to mitigate th- those risks. Right. Mm. Um, Like maybe maybe you sent the book to lots of um, uh, people who are Irish or or something like that, or I I can't recall. Um,
1: Yeah, and as I was writing it, most uh, a good chunk of it was research and writing was done when I was living in Ireland. Um, But yeah, I sent it to a few folks who are living in Ireland or Irish um, who had connections to Ireland, and so I tried to do my best there. Um, But then also you have to realize that. Even a lot of Irish people are still kind of under that colonial mindset and would be resistant to these kinds of critical ideas anyway. So, for instance, I I gave a talk on this topic to the Humanist Association of Ireland a couple months ago. And the whole idea is like thinking about critically about this history and critically about why is it that we eat what we eat? Because the fact that Ireland eats such a heavy meat and dairy diet today is a complete legacy from colonialism. That's not it's not indigenous to the diet there. Um, Certainly they weren't vegetarian and they certainly weren't vegan, but they were the, the indigenous diet of early Irish people we have from archaeological records showing. That it's not at all the meat-heavy stuff that we have today, but even then, after like presenting this and demonstrating this is not just my ideas. Some of this is actually based on archaeological evidence and pointing back to colonialism and the effects that we know that it had. That still, people in the audience who were committed rational thinkers fall right back onto the same old scripts that um, uh, advertisers use. The milk, the milk council would use, and it's like so. To an extent, I have to kind of stand up, stand up for what I know to be true about from critical animal studies, and you know, being being conscious that I can't be perfect. Because there's another thing is that because once you you try to create this book and you're limited, but to 100,000 words, and then people say, "Well, why didn't you talk about this? Why didn't you talk about that? Why didn't you talk about this?" It's like I could, I could have kept going. I could have kept going, but I had to cut a lot of that, and I've been trying to publish them in, in other venues, but. Yeah, I've tried to be honest about that, that I'm not, I'm not Irish, but I also have have to stand up for myself as I do have, I do have extensive training and, and colonial theory and in training sociological practices and, you know, an expert, I, dare I say, I'm an expert in the animal rights movement, the history of the animal rights movement. So I do, I hope that it doesn't put people completely off. Sure. Well, I mean, it. it's, I think it's just helpful that you, Yeah. Um, I think that's good. Acknowledge... That's, yeah, Sorry, we go have to be honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you were just you were honest about it in the book. And you noted that, like, you you realize this is something you should be conscious of while you're writing the book. And hopefully, that's enough. Um, okay, so so let, yeah, let's, let's get to um, quest, uh, questions uh, about the books content. Um, so your, your book approaches it's and you've already kind of mentioned this your book approaches its subject matter via uh, a Marxist vegan feminist framework. Mm-hmm. Um, could, could you please explain this frame framework to us and as well as how it influenced your book?
1: Well, I think now, if I was writing it again, I think I would just summarize it as: this is vegan sociology. So this book, bu- this book published before, well, I submitted the manuscript, the final manuscript before I founded the Vegans, so- the not Vegans Society, International Association of Vegan Sociologists. Um, but since I've c- created that with with Zoe and with a lot of people like David Nyberg, Kate Stewart, Jessica Greenbaum, uh, Matthew Cole. A lot of the like who's who in vegan sociology, and after we're coming up now on our fourth year of this, our fourth annual conference is in October. And we've really had to sit down and think, like, what is it that makes us vegan sociologists? Well, this is pretty much it. You have we've been we've deeply, deeply informed about feminist theory, which is an intersectional theory. We recognize that black feminism has been very, very, very integral to our 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 theorizing and our research. And I think what makes us unique also is that we take a Marxist approach. Not all sociologists, by the way, take that approach. It's extremely critical. (laughs) But more importantly, it's critical of the state and it's critical of the capitalist system. And certainly as vegan sociologists, we have to acknowledge that the capitalist system is very much so the main driver for animal oppression. And we know that that's not the only, there's there's been animal oppression before capitalism, of course, but really with the introduction of capitalism, we start to see that amp up significantly. So that's basically what we're doing with the Marxist bit. We're, t- we're challenging that the, the kind of economic um, exploitation of other animals and being very much so diligently aware of that, which a lot of other disciplines don't do. And then the feminist bit where we're recognizing this is a deeply intersectional issue. And then also feminism and Marxism both have this thing in common of uh, a, do- a desire for liberation and an imagination for an alternative world. Um, that's much more just and much more equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that, that's
0: useful. Um,
1: actually, and w- one thing when
0: I was reading your book that um, uh, sort of stood out to me is, uh, so I, I've never really thought of myself as Marxist, and I, I know lots of uh, vegans and people who work in animal ethics and whatnot who don't identify as Marxist, but um, it seems to me that most vegans believe something like the idea that um, a, a society's economic structure um, has a huge role plant to yeah. and, and plays a huge role in determining uh, the society's superstructure, or the, or bit more or less determining the prevailing ideology. Um, and I mean, because mo- most vegans think that um, you know uh, industrialized animal agriculture and mm-hmm. what and the various things that need to be in place in order for it to keep existing um, is is largely what explains why people have, for example. Tend to are socialized to, be, to to believe in animal welfareism, to believe that yeah you know animals don't have rights that um, their interests um, matter, but way less than our interests. Such that anytime our interests conflict with theirs, our interests trump theirs. Um, that's the kind of like ideology that people are people are socialized into uncritically. And I think the explanation that pretty much that, that vegans tend to accept is that it's we're socialized into that ideology because that ideology supports animal the industrial yeah. animal agriculture.
1: But why most that's that's true. But why most activists could not be considered Marxist vegans is because the vast majority of folks in the animal rights movement think that we can liberate animals within the capitalist system. And just to give an example of how ludicrous this is, like on one hand, yes, it's important that we have increasing popularity of veganism, more easily accessible alternatives. But is that going to liberate other animals? That remains to be seen. Because just as an example, a recent content analysis I did of British media this was a replication study of Matthew Cole's, uh, study from, well, he collected the data in 2007. And so I collected data in 2020 and I compared, and although more, well, first off in Matthew's study, there was only about 400 mentions of veganism for that year. And for mine, it was 40,000. So I had to do a sampling of that. There was no way I could code all 40,000 of those, but the other change that I saw was, There's significantly more positive portrayals of veganism in the media. Great. Wow. However, the vast majority of mentions of veganism in British media in 2020 was about buying stuff. Here's a new product. The new Greg Sausage Roll. The McDonald's McPlant is coming out. Or here's a new subscription service. Check out these new cosmetics. It was just buy, 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 buy. And believe it or not, out of the 420 articles that I coded, only one of them centered Non-human animal oppression and acknowledged on really truly acknowledged non-human animals' um, suffering as a reason for veganism. And a colleague of mine, Norm Riley, who's a PhD student, he also did a replication study and he found similar findings. So that's the difference. That's where Marxism comes in. Is like we need to be critical that the capitalist system is in of itself designed. To recreate inequality, to hoard wealth, and to extract wealth from the, the lower half of, or the lower masses of society, really, can we truly ex- expect that capitalism will liberate? I don't think it's a system that is really designed to liberate. So I think we need to start envisioning um, a world beyond capitalism. And you know, that's where it gets deep and heavy, and, pre- and perhaps for some a bit too utopian. But at the very least, I think it's important that we're critical about just focusing on buying vegan stuff or the new vegan sausage roll or whatever which is nice but is that really good, talking about the the core political element of animal uh, of speciesism mm-hmm. I, I, I'm,
0: I'm reasonably sure that we're going to be getting into this this stuff um, with some of my later questions um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move on now um, but I think we'll be returning to this later on um, okay so your your book takes a somewhat I, I, I say ambivalent but but maybe nuance is a better word um, an ambivalent or maybe just nuanced view of Gaelic Ireland, um, and so your book, your book's first body chapter starts off talking about Gaelic Ireland. Um, so on the one hand, you think that, that Gaelic Ireland was a, a hierarchical society with with speciesist practices, and, and you use the term uh, parkle to, to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on the other hand, though, uh, you also claim that that uh, Gaelic Ireland was Considerably more uh, egalitarian than egalitarian than Ireland would become under colonialism, yeah. and you also argue that uh, it was characterized by a, a prototypical vegan ethic uh, associated with animistic beliefs. Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a complicated view of, of Gaelic Ireland, I think. Um, I was hoping you could <laughs> explain your, your complex <laughs> understanding of Gaelic uh, Ireland to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, think that's, this is this is common for a lot of traditional cultures. Is that. Um, Historically, you know, we, we know that human beings aren't designed to be meat eaters. We we learned that that's that's a cultural thing, right? So historically, people lived in more uh, communal type uh, clans. They're more has uh, stronger relationships with other animals who are community members. Every culture across the world is really defined by if you go back far enough, defined by animism, and the same goes for for uh, ancient Ireland. And so the all these rich, 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 rich um, stories, myths, folklore, and of course with the coming of the Celts, the Celts are very famously an animistic society. And if you look at some of these old myths in the, the folklore, there's this idea that these animals are not just objects to consume. These are in many ways like neighbors. But this is not to say that, you know, there, were, there weren't hierarchies, because obviously some hunting did take place, not as much as it would have elsewhere, because by the time Ireland was settled, they came with domesticated animals. Um, but it really wasn't until the, the the church stepped in and started to actively squash out that animism that we're starting to see much more anthropocentrism, so human-centeredness. Uh, on the other hand, I also wanted to highlight that our early Ireland was a cattle economy. And, you know, so obviously... Cattle were, were were considered currency. Women, in a lot of ways, were also considered in, in, in that type of status. So, it, it's certainly not a, a miraculous wonderland for, for non-human animals. But I also wanted to highlight this It was mostly there, and this is a controversial bit because people have so envis- This is the politics of anthropology or the politics of you know, looking in archaeology, people want to look back and impose today's norms and values on the past. But the archaeology simply does not support that. We do know if you look at some major um, archaeological sites, like major religious gathering points like Newgrange. Yeah, there was there's a lot of evidence that there was mass slaughter there for ritual purposes. But if you look at average, like fire pits, we see the evidence for, for eating a lot of meat is very, it's very minimal. So actually, people ate a, lot of, a large variety of different foods, which with the coming of colonialism, that, that food weight uh, knowledge has been lost. The hazelnuts was a major source of calories, uh, lots of fruits and, and other uh, plants. But you know, the cows the cows are much more valuable alive. So they were kept alive for, for milk. And again, they were traded as currency. And animals would only really be killed for their flesh if they were old or you know, they were surplus in some way. But it, it, there's very, very little meat eating, at least compared to what we have today, where meeting is like a major part, like every single meal has meat. We have to think about even like looking at the mid-20th mid century, not just in Ireland, but in the U.S. and the U.K., like to have meat every single meal or even every single day. So we it's just even looking back just a few decades ago, we, we have kind of lost track with this idea that meat was very precious especially with the coming of colonialism, then like more and more people were, were just moved on to just potatoes, cabbage, maybe a little milk, maybe a little butter, maybe some eggs, but really mostly um, close to vegan.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, get, I take it that. So, I mean, that, that's, I guess, part of why you uh, call it a prototypical, so you say that Gaelic Island is a prototypical vegan ethic. I, I take it that you, you think that um, there was an attitude towards animals, maybe that was associated with animism mm-hmm. that – was reminiscent of the moral values that drive veganism. Like there, there was a, a yeah. It's, not this diet,
1: it's about the, yeah, the attitude about, um, non-human worth and the relationship between humans and other animals being much more respectful. They feature so heavily in the folklore and the mythology and, and that continues like even today. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, okay. But so, uh, as you note in the book, um, uh, Irish animism, um, ends up getting, uh, stamped out, I guess, mm-hmm. um, by, uh, uh, Christian authorities, I suppose, but, uh, yeah. but but more more thoroughly, I guess, um, just over the course of colonialism, Irish yeah. animism just um, basically gets erased. Um, and yeah. one, th- you have various things to say, I guess, but uh, and one thing, you, one thing you briefly say about it was really interesting. I thought was that um, the removal or erasure of Irish animism animism likely functioned to prevent colonized Irish folk from from recognizing the similarities between their situation. And the situation of African slaves, and, and that that in turn served to divide the two groups, which presumably mm. was in the interests of colonial powers. Um, I, I thought this was uh, this was just a neat claim, and I was hoping you would uh, explain it to us.
1: Yes, this is this is this is you know I'm speculating for a lot of this, but I do suspect that. Because of the political role that animality plays, this could be this could have something to do with it. So I mentioned earlier that animality as a category is used to justify the oppression of non of, sorry of humans of oppressed humans, but also that becomes internalized. So when you're an oppressed group uh, and you want to move away, and we still see this today. We still see this as, uh, in with why certain groups don't really want to support the animal rights movement today. Historically, if you've been you've been treated, if your people have been treated categorized understood as animal the last thing you want to do is kind of side with animals what <laughs> you want to do is move away i'm human so the feminist movement i'm not a piece of meat with the civil rights movement i am a man i'm not an animal so kind of moving away from that animality when actually critical animal studies is actually asking us well what would happen if actually we recognize that being animal being other in that way is not bad and actually the treatment of other animals is very much so integral integral to our own treatment and so I do think that that was a way. Especially also, we had to think about animism and these relationships with other animals as being you know, foundational to, to their culture, and a source of um, a, a source of knowledge, a source of wisdom, a source of um, camaraderie, a source of lots of things that kind of sustain a, a group of people. And so to kind of create that division is another way of undercutting power and to alienate, to marginalize. Um, so it's interesting in the, in the Caribbean. With the with African slavery and with Irish slavery, and it's kind of difficult to actually say that Irish people were slaves in a in a way they were, but not exactly the same, because what was happening in, as, as colonization really took took hold, especially under like Oliver Cromwell when he did a major sweep and shoved a bunch of people out, took them out to the colonies. Um, people were people were not coming to the Caribbean from Ireland for the most part out of their own free will or volition; they were actually being forced there. Um, as a way of just kind of clearing out the colonies and making way for more cows. <laughs> so they have a lot of Irish people who are, quote unquote, indentured servants who are working in the Caribbean in these horrific conditions. And just like African folks, like they they were dropping like flies. They just, they, it was a horrific way to, to, to sustain yourself. And many did not live out their indentured um, contract. And also there was a law that because they were so worried about Irish people kind of uh, Uh, kind of aligning with African people they started to make laws about well could Irish people even stay after their insurance servitude or if if they stay they have to kind of join a contract immediately because they felt that the Irish people were getting too independent and they were going to rile up African people and there was going to be this kind of joint rebellion and so finally at one point I can't remember what year I think it might have been the turn of the 18th century where they said okay no more Irish people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what all inevitably happened is that this, this creation of race started to happen where folks realized just like where you may say, well, at least I'm not animal. Then Irish people were saying, well, at least I'm not black, or at least I'm not an African person. So that, that kind of di- the division of the division with race and the division of animality that those, th- those things are happening concurrently.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I got it, I guess. Um. So like animism, um, it, if, if, if a, People held animistic beliefs. Um, the function of animalization wouldn't it wouldn't work. Animalization wouldn't serve its sort of colonial function very well. Hmm. Um, if you if you hold animi- yeah. animistic beliefs, then um, the animalization of a group will n- will not convince you. Uh, will not successfully convince you that that, that group is um, necessarily um, any worse than us. Um,
1: yeah, I think uh, so. I right? think that's it's one of the reasons sh- why, like African religions and and like hoodoo in the, in the United States. Be basically, out, you couldn't practice it. Or in the case of Ireland, like the Celtic practices would were like gradually uh, banned by first with the Catholic Church and later when the Normans came in. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably has a lot to do with it. You're mm-hmm.
0: right. Yeah, right. And I guess I, I maybe you already said this. I guess, but yeah. Um, uh, initially, um, uh, Irish folk were animalized quite, animalized quite a lot by um, by the British. Um, mm-hmm. But then um, once um, African slaves became a, a huge source of labor over the colonial period. um, And there were, I guess there were worries about um, revolts, cooperative revolts between Irish servants and uh, African slaves. It became increasingly the case that Irish folk were not being animalized so much anymore, but African slaves were being animalized and um, animism would have disrupted that, um, I guess, effort to, because, yeah, the animalizing one group, but not animalizing the others is a way of dividing them, I guess, right? yeah
1: um, yeah okay but to be clear this animalization project kind of for irish people in the united states and the uk continued well into the early 20th century
0: okay yeah um there's
1: certainly a status difference in the caribbean
0: right yeah so it was more a matter of degree than anything else it's not like an anim- irish right. sort of stopped being animalized it was maybe more that they were let animalized less em- emphatically or something like that um yeah Okay, so um, a claim you make that's closely related to your theoretical framework is that um, 19th and early 20th, this early 20th century animal activism in Ireland uh, was especially intersectional, more, more so than um, animal activism normally is. Um, so it managed to simul- simultaneously challenge speciesism and patriarchy, but, but also colonial oppression. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a way in which animal activism in Ireland during this time would have been more intersectional than, say, animal activism in, in England would have been um and so yeah i was hoping you could you could explain this
1: well i'm i hesitate to say in england because there was a lot of irish people living in in england too and there's a lot of cool intersectional examples there um i'm actually working by the way i'm working on a, a book now called vegan feminism in the first couple of chapters i look at this history and so it's not it's not just in ireland but i think ireland is interesting because the colonial um theme gets tied in there but uh, this, there's a lot of pushback and well there has been a lot of pushback in the modern animal rights movement about this intersectionality movement we need to just make it about the animals and dah, dah, dah. as we talked about at the beginning of the show obviously the research is now showing that it's not, it's not just about the animals and it never will be um, but people are acting like oh this is some new woke culture that the feminists are foisting on us but actually this is the heart of the animal rights movement the heart of the modern animal rights movement has always been intersectional so I would use this one, oh, there's a bunch of examples, but let me give two. Uh, the first one is about the, the proclamation uh, in Ireland, and then the other one I wanna talk about is a brown dog affair. So there's this woman, Jenny Wise Power in Dublin, and she ran a vegetarian restaurant, and a lot of the nationalists would would meet there, so much so that the government would spy <laughs> spy on this restaurant because so many of these like rebel nationalists were meeting there but it was not uncommon for vegetarian spots because it was an under to be to house these types of meetings because it was understood these are radical free-thinking places where major change and resistance was happening so the actual the proclamation where they said Ireland's going to go independent <laughs> here we go that was signed in a vegetarian restaurant in Dublin and that to me is fascinating and she was um, also very much so entangled with other with other causes with vegetarianism suffragette stuff and uh and that was a very that was very typical of many um activists at the time. Another the other example, I love this example, and I wish everybody knew about it. It's one of the most fascinating bits of animal rights history that I think too few of us know about, the brown dog affair. So there's this woman named Charlotte Despard, and she was she's I think she was born in Scotland, but she was basically lived her life in Ireland. And she like the others, she was very much so an anti-vivisection. She was a, an Irish nationalist. She was, uh, I believe she was also a socialist. And she lived in the Battersea area of London at one point. And she wanted to bring over, I think that's where she died, actually. She, lived, she grew up in Ireland, but she finally, when she got older, she, she died in um, in Battersea. But she wanted to be amongst the people. This was a hotbed of activism. So at the time, uh, the anti-vivisection movement at the turn of the 20th century, uh, was very, very few regulations. Um, really before the Anti-Cruelty Act, I think in 1878, in the 1870s, it was a free-for-all. You could do whatever you wanted to animals. Um, but even when that kind of that act came into play, there was still a lot of horrendous abuse that was happening to non-human animals in the name of science. And really it was a lot of it was just career-building stuff. And a lot of other marginalized groups took notice of this because it didn't just symbolize violence against animals. It symbolized this, this idea that you could just do whatever you wanted to marginalized groups and a true fear that this, that animals are going to be first and we're next. And that turned out to be the case. Enslaved women, uh, uh, Irish women, uh, women, just white women. They were subject to all kinds of medical, horrific medical experimentation in the name of science. Um, so, anyway, they they decided they would. It was very much so an animal rights pushed uh, campaign, but I just wanted to say this is it was deeply, deeply kind of and entangled with this fear of the uh, happening to humans and also colonialism. So, anyway, she she brings a statue. and There's a little brown dog statue, and they erect it in Battersea outside of an animal hospital that they created, and it was it symbolized all the other animals that were being harmed currently in in these laboratories and all the other people who were vulnerable to that as well. Now, the medical students in London found out about this and who were the medical students in London at like in like 1900 and something? They were like rich white kids, right? So they they stormed down into Battersea like how dare these Irish um uh, socialists women and Uh, working class poor people how dare they try to resist our claim to you know our entitlement basically so it ended up being these like battles like they would come down there try to tear the statue down and the people of battersea would rise up and protect them they would be like brouhaha's and all that sort of stuff the medical students would go and trash the the animal hospital and it was just this chaos basically and so when they would have these these meetings in Battersea to try to strategize, like, what are we going to do to protect the statue? And they would actually have Irish nationalists, like men, Irish nationalists, kind of patrolling inside the meeting hall. And they'd have, like, badges on them that, that were for, green for Ireland or something like that. I can't remember now. but. It was very much so a, a clear in, entanglement of this resistance to br- like British imperial control over marginalized groups, is a resistance to violence against animals. And it was because so many women were integral to promoting this campaign and leading this campaign. It was also a feminist issue. Eventually, what happened was the, uh, the local government there says, we can't afford to police this anymore. If you want to keep the statue up, you're going to have to pay for it yourself, policing yourself. Well, it was a very, very poor area of London, so that wasn't going to happen. So under the cover of darkness, the statue was removed. And quickly thereafter, the women av- uh, got together and created a, a big protest in Trafalgar Square. So even though it's in England, this is very much it's Irish people. George, George Bernard Shaw was there when the statue was unveiled. George, I think he was also at the protest in Trafalgar Square. where They were doing talks and lectures. So this is very much so like right in the heart, like right outside of London, like this amazing kind of Irish resistance right outside of like the heart of the empire. So and there's just there's just so many examples. It's also when and this is the last one it's a shorter one. <laughs> but also when they were trying to decide, you know, when Irish independence was kind of brewing in the background, there was a few people who said, we fully recognize that this this British imperialism in our country has decimated the land, the landscape people are left without homes or they have to emigrate or they are um, renters, which puts them in a very, very vulnerable position. Their diet has been just turned to crap. Now it's nearly a vegan diet, but not the healthy kind. As I mentioned earlier, this is a colonized, destitute vegetarian diet. And so people recognize that the oppression of non-human animals is, is directly related to Irish people's oppression. So some people pushed back on that and advocated vegetarianism, advocated moving away from the animal agricultural system. Uh, of course that didn't happen because Ireland just kind of dug down after independence. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for all these examples. Um, I think, um, I, I mean, I don't, don't want to psychologize people too much, but um, some, you, you mentioned that there's um, it's, there's some resistance to um, intersectionality within um, the animal rights movement. Um, some people think it's, we should really just be focusing on, on animal rights and ignoring um, you know, other forms of oppression. Um, and I, I wonder whether to some extent that resistance is motivated by um, like a poverty of imagination. Like, so I think sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to see how different um, forms of oppression intersect with each other. I mean, we can all call them all forms of oppression and say they belong to the same category, but seeing the ways in which they relate to each other is not always easy, particularly if you're not um, an academic, um, I think. And so like the, the sort of work you're doing in this book is useful because it just gives concrete examples of intersections. It's like, look here, here's inter- various intersections. Here's some more. And they happened <laughs> in, in the world. Um, so maybe, and uh, yeah, it just strikes me as useful.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, um, I think that's can also just quickly say like that think that a, a lot of this is also people are just so desperate to help animals. They feel like we're just kind of adding too much to the plate. And also there's the tradition and this is what we always do in animal rights. And I think you're right. Poverty of imagination. They don't really, don't haven't really been encouraged to think about what other alternatives are there beyond what the mainstream animal rights kind of media, you know, the main, main organizations kind of give us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, Okay. So in, in chapter four,
0: the, uh, I mean, it's not exactly the fourth chapter, but um, it's called the, the title and the the one that is part of its title is chapter four. Um, You, you discuss some of the ways in which, nationalism intersects with the oppression of animals um and i think you kind of already touched on this but um on, on the one hand you note that nationalism sometimes motivated some rather prejudice efforts to protect animals from being abu- abused by oppressed human groups um but but on the other hand uh nationalism was used also to to frame vegan activism as contrary to irish national identity um uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much more you want to talk about this. I guess you kind of already did talk about maybe both these things a little bit. Are you interested in in saying well, about a
1: bit more? I can add a tiny bit because I, it is again, it's a nuanced thing. Because, like I yeah. said, there were activists and some political leaders who were very much so cognizant of what um, animal oppression and uh, a meat-heavy, dairy-heavy diet was doing to people. But on the other hand, obviously, <laughs> uh, Ireland went a different direction, and it became, especially after independence, it became very isolationist, heavily, heavily a- agricultural. And a lot of that was simply because of all the hundreds of years of you know, being organized in this way. It was became a pathway of dependence. It was very difficult, especially when you become a, a brand new nation, your resources are slim to none, and you're very vulnerable in the world system. You want the rest of the world system and the world to recognize you as a, a valid new nation state. And so ultimately Ireland just kind of went with the, the easy way, which was to continue what it had been doing, which the infrastructure was already set up for. And uh, the other thing and uh, i always remember this my partner at the time he's he says you can't ever criticize the farmers if you criticize the farmers there's hell to pay and that's very much so the case now like farmers are so uh endeared to to irish culture they there's this idea that they got us through they got us through this these, these, these 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 wars they got us through independence they helped sustain us as a nation and build us as a nation and so this really reverence for farmers, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but it makes it very difficult then to critique. Well, the farmers might be fun and great, or whatever, but they're they're perpetuating a colonial system. It's the colonial system; it's put into place by colonizers. Um, but it makes it very makes a, a very very difficult then in modern conversations about. Um, animal rights and diet in Ireland makes it very difficult to have these conversations because the, you're inevitably running up against how dare you speak about our farmers and, and they so integral to our culture. If you're, anybody's interested in that and more in that, the um, woman who runs uh, Go Vegan World, she she <laughs> she she does she goes head to head with a lot of these um, organizations like the, the Board BIA or the Dairy Council or major talk show hosts and and, and you can see this type of nationalist rhetoric is being thrown back at it. But that's one of the aims of this book, Kyle, is I want to highlight that this, that's not the only story of Ireland. And if we, we, there's other ways to kind of celebrate the nation of Ireland without just celebrating these old colonial pathways, which are uh, violent. They're violent towards animals. They're violent towards humans whose diets are, you know, all these diet-related diseases. And also Ireland is getting dinged every year. They're exceeding their climate change, uh, their, you know, climate change goals the United Nations is always after him for that. So it's just not sustainable. And I think it's time for a new, a new story. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and and national identity is something that's um, constructed um, in various, there are various social forces that are at play in the construction of of national identity. Um, There's probably nothing weird about thinking that national identity can be as a result, pretty fluid. And um, maybe there's, we can distinguish between like more legitimate sources of national identity and less legitimate sources. But I mean, your book points to some pretty legitimate, I think legitimate sources that could be used to influence um, Irish national identity. Um, like, so for example, uh, Ireland's past, um, the um, uh, anim- animism and, and prototypical uh, uh, vegan ethic that you, that you find in, in, in Irish past. Uh, it, it strikes me that, um, I mean, just in general, n- Countries tend to identify with their past to some extent. I assume that there are people in Ireland who are very interested in Gaelic Ireland, Ireland, and in what the practices were in Gaelic Ireland. I wonder I, I, I guess maybe maybe one of the things you hope is that learning more about um, the way animals were, were understood in Gaelic Ireland and focusing on the positive stuff specifically could be taken to um, construct a, a more positive Irish identity, one that would also be experienced as, as authentic. Yeah. Um, is, I think for
1: a, Ireland especially Ireland especially, there was a concerted effort in the 1920s, 30s and 40s to go back and look at the anthropology, go back and look at the archaeology and create, I mean to, to an extent kind of remember and find, but a lot of was active creation of this Irish identity because of so many hundreds of years of colonialism felt they felt like, well, who are we as a people? Now we're, we're an independent nation. who are we? And actively trying to create this new Celtic race, which you know, is quite questionable. Today, we kind of like look at that funny. But that, this idea, of course, that was the age of eugenics where race was thought to be more biological. But especially for Ireland, there's this idea that we're seen as culturally um, vacant, that we're somehow backwards, but actually have this rich, vibrant history. So that was like an active part of the nation building at one point. And so I think it'd be interesting now as Ireland is moving into a new century and entering a new world where... Uh, we have different, differing, uh, I think, modernizing ideas about non-human animals. They're not just commodities. Mm-hmm. But really for Ireland, what's going to be the pushback is climate change. You just can't keep on the way they are. And so eventually, I think, even now we're starting to see Board BIA, the, which is the food board, starting to recognize, well, there's alternatives we have to explore. So the the, the nation-building part, I think, it could help with that if we kind of start to celebrate Oat milk isn't a threat to Irish dairy. Oat milk is central to Irish culture, and oat milk is like Irish food can once again can be this like major international symbol, but now more congruent with climate change, the, the reality of climate change.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let, 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 I guess let's let's move on. Um, so, in in your in chapter five, uh, you argue that the distinction conservationists make between native species and invasive species. Is a kind of colonial remnant. It's it's something that's traceable to the impact colonialism had on our conceptual framework. Um, and and you, you you don't spend a lot of time dwelling on the, on this claim, but I, I thought it was really uh, interesting in part because the distinction between native and invasive species is used by conservationists in in many countries. It's sort of pervasive um, in conservation conservation biology. Um, so I was, I was hoping you would explain this to us.
1: Well, I can do a little bit. There's there's a, quite a lot of research in critical animal studies. If folks are interested, if you go to Google Scholar and type it in, you'll find more people who've elaborated on this in more detail than myself. Um, but basically, this yeah, it goes into who belongs and who doesn't, and how far back does that you know right to be there exists, or you know how long has it been there? Because if you go back far enough, like aren't we all kind of invasive? <laughs> but I think about especially as an American, and I grew up with all this kind of this idea. Even you know what not just grow up with, it's still happening. The last time I went to America last summer, turned on Fox News, always a mistake. And they show this like horde of refugees coming up across, across the border. And the language they're using at the ticker at the bottom is like, there's an invasion, there's an invasion. Like, so it's very much so the same type of logic we use, like who belongs and who doesn't belong. And ignoring the fact that Wherever you may be, for whatever reason you may be there, like you're still sentient beings, and you're just trying to survive. And so this kind of notion of invasiveness, I think, allows us to sort of psychologically distance or detach from that. And you know, obviously, like the the history of the history of species making, this is a recent thing. It really, is not since the since the late 1700s and early 1800s when we're deciding who belongs where and who is what and creating definitions about you know proper this and proper that. This is all social construction from Western science. So to an extent, yeah, I do recognize like that, you know, there's 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 major consequences when some species are introduced in places where the ecosystem isn't set up for it. But when we're looking at places like Ireland, we tend to kind of look the other way. So, well, we'll enact all kinds of violence on animals that aren't supposed to be here, but we'll look the other way when we introduce billions of sheep or cows into the landscape to completely destroy completely destroy all the ecosystems of ireland so it really is quite political and who's considered invasive and who is not Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah right um i i think um i mean that yeah the uh, people working in compassionate conservation um have have thought a lot about this sort of thing um and uh it's it's i mean it's a fairly general issue so um uh it's certainly not, not not specific to Ireland. I find it very, very like, I, 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 the, more it, the more I learn about it, the more it worries me, <laughs> this um, distinction between native and invasive species. Um, it, it seems like, I, I've, I've, I've seen multiple sources now that indicate that um, quite a lot of measurements of biodiversity, and in particular, uh, uh, measurements that are trying to um, track the extent to which biodiversity has declined in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm they're specifically only looking at native biodiversity not biodiversity in general and and they're not making that explicit at all that they're specifically looking at native biodiversity i mean there there's a whole bunch of questions we could ask about that but one that just immediately occurs to me is that um from an environmentalist perspective where i'm where i'm interested in things like the support of um you know ecosystem resources um, in, um, the resilience of ecosystems or what have you, I would really want to know just like something more like total biodiversity, not specifically native biodiversity. That's not telling me what I want to know.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but cool,
0: yeah, yeah. So I find it kind of scary. Um, but, but for, for different reasons,
1: yeah, but um, I, I should highlight to people who are listening in case they don't know, like we're, this is this serious consequences. Like in Ireland, when they try to wipe out all these rabbits with all these horrific, like, chemical sort of experiments and then in in australia right now it's like open season on cats because cats are quote-unquote an invasive species and are now kind of quote-unquote feral seems to go out and start blasting up cats it's like it's, it's life or death it's some grim stuff based just it's not just about you know the the category that's being constructive constructed invasive or native that's the consequences what does that mean and then the consequences and again we see the same thing with with marginalized human groups as well don't we yeah
0: yeah yeah um all right. Great. So, okay. Uh, also in chapter five, um, you introduce a concept called post-speciesism. Um, and I take it that uh, the thought here is that there's there's something analogous to other posts that people are maybe yeah. more familiar with, like um, post-colonialism or post-sexism or post-racism. Um, so you introduce this concept. I was hoping you could explain this concept to us and, and maybe provide some examples of it in Ireland.
1: Yes. So this is this is an idea I came, I think I've been, I blogged about this a few years before the book came out because it was just, I think Ireland is oh, such a great example of this. Um, so basically the idea with post-speciesism, I'll use post-feminism as an example, keep it simple. But in post-feminism, it's the idea that feminism is more or less kind of reached its pinnacle. We've got, we've achieved what we need to, women can vote, uh, women have basic rights and you know, women's status is improved. And so this, so a lot of ways we talk about feminism as so we've, we don't need it anymore. It's a thing that was um, used useful in the past when sexism, sexism was pervasive. And so we kind of lose sight of the fact that actually a lot of these inequalities persist. We just kind of don't see them as much anymore, or we've been kind of induced to not look anymore, or we just don't think it's a serious, whatever it may be. So for instance, with women's rights, like, I mean, I'm, people believe this. People believe this. I've gotten to so many arguments of people. I mean, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as sexism anymore. Like interesting because my pay is significantly going to be lower than my male counterparts and violence against men's violence against women is still pervasive it's like three women a day in the united states are killed by men it's just outlandish numbers anyway so if we would try to put that same sort of logic onto speciesism we can see a very similar uh, situation so we have this idea now that we're in a modern you know, advanced society, all the brutal things that happen to non-human animals. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, if you come across someone who see, you show them video clips from slaughterhouses, or they see earthlings and they say, oh, that's just the extreme stuff. That doesn't happen anymore. I've seen cows in the fields. They're happy. (laughs) This idea that speciesism doesn't exist anymore. I love animals and animals are treated well. Even if they're in slaughterhouses, they're being treated well. So this ideology of the inequality, the oppression, the violence is being masked over by this idea that that was something that doesn't happen that happened in the past, but we've gotten past that. And so if you want to take issue with it, you know, you're just being uh, over the top or whatever. You're just not, you're just not aware of the reality of how happy these animals are and how good they have it now. And you hear that. I mean, people really, truly believe these cows are happy and they've got it made. <laughs> I hear that stuff all the time. So in Ireland, I think it adds a whole another level of Ugh, because Ireland. Um, one of its biggest um, uh, economies remains to this day, its export of food. And, and still, by the way, Britain is its main um, uh, destination for that. But really, globally, Ireland has kind of established itself as, you know, this old traditional quaint place where animals are treated so wonderfully and the farmers just dote on their animals and give them individual names and pet them and go out with a cup of coffee in the morning and check on them and look out over the pasture and these cows are happy. These cows have got it made. <laughs> so that's that's you see that kind of stuff on the labeling when people are buying these Irish products all over the world. This idea that Ireland, man, that's they really got it made there. These animals are really being cherished, and the old violent ways of hurting animals—that's thing of the past. So you see that that becomes a marketable thing as well. It becomes marketable, and so I have some examples I think in the book where I show some of the magazine or sorry the the. I think I do. I think I have a clip from a, mag- a catalog from Aldi there because Aldi had a big "Love Ireland" campaign, buy Irish campaign.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, so, the, I mean, maybe this is related to what you just said. Um, I, I take it that um, this post speciesism idea is um, useful because it helps frame uh, what welfareist reforms. Um, so, I, I know that I know that you, you, um, your view is that welfareist reforms are best understood as. Just pernicious. They just sort of hide the terrible reality of animal agriculture, and um, we shouldn't. We should. We, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be thinking them of them as merely like um, good, but insufficient. We should think of them as actually bad because they make it harder to achieve um, abolition in the future. Um, and I think that I, I understood this post-speciesism idea as a way of sort of framing that. You're, you're saying that like welfare reforms fit into a post-speciesist narrative.
1: Um, yeah, that's how, how they're best understood. Absolutely. Because, yeah, wow, we live in a world where all these laws exist to to make sure all those barbaric things that used to happen to animals don't happen anymore. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. they absolutely do support that logic and help us kind of perpetuate this system of violence without thinking critically about it. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, uh, here's another another thought about post-speciesism that um, I and um, I'm open to being wrong about this, but. It seems to me that post-speciesism is maybe a little worse than the other posts that are out there, like um, post-racism or post-sexism, because um, the other posts um, are, so the the mistake all of them are making is thinking that whatever, that that, that the relevant form of prejudice or relevant form of oppression, they're they're all mistaken in thinking that these things are over. So post-racism is wrong in thinking that um, racism is done. Uh, Post-sexism is wrong in thinking that sexism is a thing of the past post speciesism is wrong in thinking that speciesism is a thing of the past um, but when it comes to post race things like post racism and post-sexism at the very least there's um, his, you know significant forms of historical moral progress that can be pointed to things like the success of the suffrage movement or um, the abolition of slavery um, I, I, th- at least there has been like really significant moral progress that can be pointed to and uh, really the thing is just to note that that was not enough to get rid of sexism and, and racism and whatnot. Um, but with post speciesism, I, I realize that like this is this is a useful concept because it frames um well welfare ref- uh, regulations. Um but if you like his from a historical perspective, it's not like we really can point to significant historical accomplishments with respect to animals. If anything, like the situation of animals now, is probably worse than it's ever been because um, animal agriculture became industrialized and it got way worse when it became industrialized, way worse for animals. And um, that's a relatively recent development, the, the creation of industrial animal agriculture. And um, it's even though veganism does seem to be um, becoming much more popular than it used to be, it's still the case that global demand for meat is increasing, I think. And so it just seems like the situation of animals is Worse than it's ever been, and it's just getting worse. And so, post speciesism seems even more pernicious, uh, given that historical fact. Um, that's how, that's what it seems to me, at least.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think. I, I mean, I want to make it clear. I don't think that you know th- we were talking about all these successes for for people of color and for women. There's still like still this is life or death for for yeah. folks, but the, the scale, the absolute scale, just the magnitude. Of violence and the diversity of violence against non-human animals i do think that post-speciesism is a, a lot more problematic in that it it really is one a, of a, so success such a successful um uh, you just block to block any sort of critical thinking about yeah. uh, this horrific stuff
0: yeah okay um well so you i guess this is this leads into my next question your, your book was somewhat optimistic about the future of the future of human animal relations in ireland um but you also you also express some reservations um so i'm wondering like do do you think that the vegan movement is likely to make significant future gains uh in in ireland um and uh given your reservations um i mean what what barriers do you think stand in the way of of potential progress
1: i want to make it clear i don't think it was interesting like when i was talking to was it Ronnie Lee? Who's like really one of the kind of vanguards of the movement. And I remember asking him about, um, activism in the eighties there. And he said, Oh, well, was, ah, Ireland was actually quite behind. And that turned out not to be the case. I do think I, l- I left that in the book, but there was a guy, uh, who has reached out to me since then. He's like, I was an activist back then. And look at all the stuff we did. <laughs> and so if you go on my website, I have linked, I've linked to his website. Um, maybe we can put it in the show notes, but the thing is that Ireland has been doing a lot of activism. It's just that they don't get the same platform as we have in the UK and the US. That's the end of it. So when I was living in Ireland, and like I said, and that bartender said, oh, well, how do you survive as a vegan there? I'm like, what do you mean? There's vegan restaurants. I was living in Cork. It's like there's vegan restaurants. Like, there's vegan restaurants. I could go to the grocery store like anybody else and get all the fancy analogs or whatever. And it wasn't any more difficult. But I also think that one of the coolest things, and i oh, Gosh, I wish I, could, I just wish I had all the time in the world to do all these research projects. But I wish somebody would do this. I think somebody's done. I think one project came around where they were looking at this. But Sandra Higgins, the woman I mentioned before who runs uh, Go Vegan World, uh, she has done this campaign where she's just a one woman show, bless her, and she has she's basically puts these billboards up all across Ireland. On buses, she gets the big signs on buses, she puts them in newspapers, and they're just simple, straightforward. We, they, they trust us, we kill them. Or, why well, pet one, love the, and eat the other, those kind of things. And, but she, she personalizes these animals. She gives them identity. She gives them um, characteristics to where you can't just see them as just objects anymore. But I thought that was one of the most profound things. And it's like, could that actually have been possible anywhere else? Perhaps because Ireland is such a small place, there's only 4.6 million people living there, but she's been able to just blanket the country with these messages and getting people to think more. And while a lot of older people might be resistant, you have to think about the young people who are coming up in a world where animal rights doesn't seem so foreign and veganism doesn't sound so foreign. I thought that was, I mean, I could be on some side street in Cork, not even near the city center. And I'd look up and there's one of her billboards. It's just amazing. And the other thing I uh, noticed about Ireland, perhaps again because it's a smaller country, but there has been so many times where we were just driving around in the car and we turn on the radio in a mainstream radio station and they'd be having an animal rights debate. They're complaining. Like I remember once we were listening and there was a a German circus that wanted to come to Ireland, but they had animals. Well, Ireland had banned. You can't bring animals. to Ireland, any circuses with animals, but they are there having this debate, this discussion online, I mean, on the, on the radio station. And I've heard that with other, with other cases as well. It's like, there's a conversation, there's an interest. And I think also, perhaps that's a bit lacking in other places, because it's like I said, with the British study that I did a couple years ago, like even the Guardian, the Guardian is like vanguard of liberal... (laughs) Of, of liberal news reporting, whatever, they were like, what are the worst? They were one of the worst for just like trashing on veganism, not giving it a fair shake. So I Ireland actually is pretty unique in that it has this kind of spirit for uh, having debate and talking about these things. So perhaps, and I also want to say since the book is published and I can't really um, cite any particular things because I haven't really been following as closely, but I do know there's been a lot of activism recently, like I think an, animal rebellion, which is an extension of uh, Extinction Rebellion, which is a UK-based group. They've been quite active in Ireland, um, and then there's Vegan Information Project run by Roger Yates. Bless them, they go out almost every weekend and and hang out in City Centre Dublin and reach people that way. So it's it's there, it's there, and I think it's an absolute crime and shame that we don't really celebrate what has been happening and now and what's been happening in the past. So many amazing, amazing activists across the centuries that have just gotten lost to history. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I, uh, um, that, that's a whole lot of uh, reasons for being optimistic. Um, <laughs> I take it that, um, with respect to reservations, um, maybe, maybe one thing you'd want to say is that the reservations you have are to some extent, not really any different from the reservations you'd have about progress in maybe in any Western country, like the structural barriers are in place in Ireland, but they're also in place in other places. And we shouldn't think that it's a whole lot worse. In that respect, in Ireland, than it is elsewhere. Maybe
1: no, um, I think Ireland is, is does have some unique barriers. I mean, okay. first off, that that legacy of colonialism that's made it relatively impoverished, and it was not that long ago that really the European Union had stepped in to help help out Ireland because of the big the big crash that happened and like really really rocked a lot of people. I remember when I took my students on a tour a tour there uh, when I was it was two thousand and seventeen. And our tour guide was like in his late 70s and said, what are you doing running this tour with us for two weeks? He says, well, the recession happened and all my retirement was gone. So it's just like this kind of financial vulnerability of Ireland historically um, has made it to where people are really hesitant to be thinking about anything different, anything new, I think. Um, also, this legacy of trauma, this legacy of trauma that, that of colonialism and more specifically the famine, not famine, but famines. Of the 1700s and the 1800s the trauma of after becoming independent and there was a lot of poverty then as well the trauma of you know food has always been highly highly um political and, and a sensitive issue for irish people and rightfully so and i do hear this pop- popping up sometimes when i do hear listening on these uh, animal rights debates in ireland is oftentimes people bring up the famines like as though like how dare we even question this um diet of wealth that we have now where we can have meat and dairy in every single meal when there was a time when we were starving to death so that legacy uh, that that traumatic legacy still very much so informs I think a lot of um, Irish people's thinking about it So we're thinking about an Ireland that has been economically kind of put through the ringer and Ireland that has dealt with hundreds of years of colonial trauma those things we still have to overcome but Ireland today is is a modern nation state and it's an international nation state. It's not a backwards kind of island out in the middle of nowhere anymore, or we can't think of it that way anymore anyway. This is a, it's an integrated nation state that's modern and contemporary and, and veganism has very much so much to offer a, a, a remembering of these amazing pre-colonial um, practices and cultures. Uh, it's a a, a, a recreation of modern food ways that's more sustainable in a, in a, in a especially for a country that is well exceeding its greenhouse greenhouse gas emission limits and then of course because of that colonial oppression I think that Irish people if they really thought about it like what is there to be learned about this shared oppression with other animals over the history and they like, didn't knowing what is it what is it like then as an Irish people when you've been compared to monkeys and apes and lesser than and subhuman what can then be gained if you actually have uh, recognize a shared, kind of camaraderie with other animals and not just kind of saying, well, they're animals and we're not animals anymore and kind of pushing the animals further down. Right.
0: Okay. Well, well look, I, I've taken up uh, a lot of your time. Uh, I, I'd like to thank you again for, for joining us to talk about your book, Animals in Irish Society, Interspecies Oppression and Vegan Liberation in Britain's First Colony, uh, which was published in 2021 by the State University of New York Press. Uh, the, the only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects. And if so, uh, what are they?
1: Uh, I got a uh, bit off four that I can chew, Kyle. Uh, I mentioned earlier I'm working on a book on uh, vegan feminism the proposal I'm about to submit to Bloomsbury. I'm also working on a book on vegan sociology. As I mentioned, I've um, been cr- creating this vegan sociology project. I think this is going to be an important text to kind of introduce the subject. Um, Got a lot of other uh, a couple of other book projects in, in the works I'm, I'm really interested in the heroic age of of polar exploration and again kind of extending this sort of colonial um theory to see like you know what what can we learn from that it's like i could talk ear off about that but i won't and i'm also interested in looking at um vegan witchcraft believe it or not i've been invited to write a proposal for Routledge on that one um because I think that's, I do a lot of work in, the, in, in vegan atheism, animal rights and atheism. But I think witchcraft is the one that is really unexplored, kind of modern paganism. And there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And um, I've also got an article that's now under, in, in, in revision with the Journal of Appalachian Studies, which basically talks about a lot of, about what we've talked here today and applies it to the Appalachian setting. Obviously, a lot of those people were Irish as well but Appalachia, I think, is sort of an internal colony in the United States, and there's a lot of fascinating stuff to unpack there. And the last thing that I'll say, because I could keep going, is I'm also really interested, I'm working now on, a, on an article about the construction of the Celtic race. There's a book that came out, and it's called Of Apes and Angels. And in this book, they the author, I think their last name is Lewis, they document all the seminization where of, of Irish people, how they're made to look like, um, apes, and there's an argument they make where um, after after independence, there's sort of a, a change in how Irish people were portrayed by Irish people themselves, sort of making them look superhuman or even angelic. So that to me is very interesting about how animality is being, or this kind of really colonialized animality, is being used in a way to create this new human sort of identity in Ireland. So it's it's. it's I can't wait to unpack that. And that's kind of in the early works right now, but uh, stay tuned for that. And anybody can find my research on my website at Corey Yeah. Uh,
0: I've, I've seen your website. It's a, uh, it's, it's a good website. It's very detailed uh, oh, more information you. than like the average academic website uh, has. Um, but anyways, uh, okay. Well, great. Um, it's been great talking to you, uh, Corey and all, all the best with your, uh, with your projects.
1: Thanks so much. It's really fun. I appreciate the time.